T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Tonight's strange sights in the night skies over Texas. Night skies over Texas. everyone. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the inaugural show of the Joiner Report at Inception Radio Network. I'm your host, Angela Joiner. I'd like to thank Jamie Havikin for allowing me to join his network. I've really been looking forward to this first show of uh, 2011. I'm really looking forward to see what 2011 brings us. And thank you all for the warm welcome I've received here. My guest tonight is George Knapp. Most of my listeners are going to know immediately who George is because he's a frequent host on Coast to Coast AM, and he's the chief reporter on Channel 8's I-Team investigative unit in Las Vegas. He's won enough awards to make any journalist's mouth water. George has earned four regional Edward R. Murrow Awards and a national Edward R. Murrow Award for his investigative stories on the voter registration fraud in the Clark County election of 2004. He's won a prestigious Peabody Award and 17 Emmy Awards. Nine times he's won the Mark Twain Award for Best News Writings from the Associated Press. And in 1990, his series about UFOs was selected by United Press International as Best in the Nation for Individual Achievement by a Journalist. He also investigated the Skinwalker Ranch and co-authored a book on the strange happenings of the ranch. He is widely known in the UFO field for breaking the Bob Lazar story. Welcome to the Joiner Report, George. Angela, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, thrilled also to be on your first show of the new year and first show on this new network, and I hope it really works out for you and uh, Jamie. 
Well, thank you so much. We're really uh, hoping things are going to start uh, rocking, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see what happens here. I, I just uh, have loved everyone I've met here, and uh, really enjoy working with Jamie. Listen, George, uh, you were telling me uh, when we weren't on the air just a minute ago that you're making some people mad in uh, Las Vegas. Tell us what's going on. Well, I pretty much make people mad every day of my life, uh, Angela, and you know how that goes in mainstream news reporting. You're, if you're not making somebody mad, you're not doing a very good job. Uh, right now in Las Vegas, there's something underway called the Summit of the Horse. It's, uh, and it was supposed to be several hundred people. It turned out to be several dozen people. Horse breeders, uh, auction, uh, organizers, folks who have a vested financial interest in the horse industry in one way or another and the main focus of this gathering is to to sort of get some impetus going for a return to horse slaughterhouses in the US uh, back in 2007 Congress basically responding to uh, pressure for the public decided that uh, the horse slaughterhouses in America just was not a, were not a good thing they cut off funding for USDA inspections which means essentially that those plants couldn't operate so they shut down and a lot of the folks who make money off of shipping horses off to be slaughtered have been pushing ever since to get them reinstated. Uh, there's a legislator, a state legislator named Sue Wallace from up in Montana who spearheaded this thing. Uh, these folks uh, got onto my radar screen because of my longstanding interest in wild horses. Here in Nevada, we have about half of the nation's wild horse herds, uh, those that are remaining on the range. Uh, there are now more wild horses in captivity held in government corrals than there exist on the public range, even though something in excess of 50 million acres was set aside by law for these horses to roam free essentially forever. It was overwhelmingly approved by Congress. In fact, there wasn't a single dissenting vote. The American public loves the Mustangs and wants them to be preserved, and over the past uh, several years, the BLM, uh, under pressure from agribiz, big cattle interests, and uh, have been systematically wiping them out. Millions of acres have been wiped free of horses. Anyway, this summit of the horse that's going on uh, this week is supposed to rekindle interest and get a political movement going to have slaughter horse uh, houses reopened so that uh, American horses, including wild mustangs, can be carved up, uh, turned into steaks or burgers or dog food or fed animals in zoos. The fact is, oh. every single month, Every single month, about 10,000 American horses uh, go to slaughter in Canada and Mexico. It's not like the closing down of American plants ended the slaughter. Uh, the, the simple fact is breeders uh, crank these horses out. They, out, of a, out of 100 horses that they breed and bring into the world, they might save five. Now, they might keep five, which are the best, and the other 95 they dispose of, and most of those end up in slaughter. And then, of course, you have wild horses that uh, ranchers just absolutely despise them, so any excuse that, that the ranching industry can use to get wild horses off the range, uh, they, they do. And they will claim that they're starving and, or that they're destroying the range. You know, uh, 25,000 wild horses are supposed to be bad for the range, whereas 3 million cattle that are grazing on the same, very same land is somehow not bad for the range. And it's, anyway, I've been following it for a long time. I went over to the summit. We had another crew that was at the summit covering this thing. Uh, and we also covered, I went to cover this uh, alternate 
um, a news conference that was held to criticize the summit. This lady named Simone Netherlands, who said slaughterhouse, uh, the return to the slaughterhouses is ridiculous, it's not needed, it would be inhumane to the horses, it would be a terrible policy. She did this story, and then uh, the day after she did the story, she went to the news conference because she had a credential to cover it. As soon as they saw her and realized that's the lady that was on my story, they jumped her. I mean, this Sue Wallace, this state lawmaker, grabbed her by the arm, uh, told her that she wasn't welcome there, uh, that her pa- press pass, which they had given to her, was revoked. They called security. Uh, this lady, Simone, is a horse lover, horse owner. She just had a fall from a horse a couple of months ago, broke her elbow, had seven pins in her elbow. So when this lady grabbed her and told her to get out, it hurt. Anyway, she ended up filing a police report. There's going to be a lawsuit. There are First Amendment issues that are involved. But clearly, the story that we aired Tuesday night managed to get under the skin of these pro-horse folks, uh, pro-slaughter folks, and I think there's a lot more to come in the story. But I'm not a welcome person there. They don't don't like me much at all. Well, I did some stories uh, back then when, in 2007, when they were uh, advocating for closure of the slaughterhouses in the United States. And since then, you know, the flip side of the coin, now they're saying, well, the horses suffer even more now because they're being trailered to Mexico or Canada while they're sick, pregnant, whatever's wrong with them, you know, for slaughter. So they're suffering more. Well, what do you think about that? Well, I think there is some, some merit to that argument. However, if you, you the argument that's made by the anti-slaughterhouse folks is that there is no such thing as a humane way to kill these horses. Horses are different from cows. You put them in a chute, uh, they have a, a much more uh, acute sense of, of flight or fight. So you try to put a bolt in their head, which is the method they say they're going to use, Horses will move, unlike a dumb cow sitting there, They, which is why the bolts end up going in their eyes or in their mouths. It's terrible suffering. Uh, I am unconvinced that there is any such way to do humane slaughter. I will grant you that transporting these horses over long distances is also bad. These They're, they're called killer buyers who buy the, up the discarded animals at auctions, and they throw them in these, they pack them in these trucks and trailers, and transport them uh, through the cold, through the heat, don't give them water, it's terrible. However, I, uh, I find it less than convincing that the people who are part of this industry are all that concerned about the welfare of these horses they're sending to slaughter. I think that they're more concerned about their bottom line and how much money they can make. And, um, you know, a discarded horse is probably worth 300 bucks or so to them. That's what they're concerned about, not whether these horses are suffering in the slaughterhouses. That's and some of some of the horses that go to those slaughterhouses, there's not anything wrong with them as far as a physical illness or lameness or uh, being an older horse. Uh, sometimes uh, they're just a horse that didn't break well and, and they don't want them anymore or, you know, whatever the case is. It doesn't mean they're all sick and dying anyway. You're absolutely right. In fact, according to the USDA, about 95% of the horses that are sent to slaughter are perfectly healthy. It's just that nobody wants them anymore. You know, in a down economy like we have right now, uh, people are have a hard time feeding their family, let alone horses, so they, they dump their horses just the same way they dump their, their cats and dogs, why our shelters are overflowing right now with the unwanted pets. Uh, you know, they, they get rid of them that way. Uh, it's unfortunate, but it does happen. However, you know, what, what do you want to do with them? Um, you, you want to kill them and eat them? Is that, is that the, the best way to, to, to treat them? 
I think a better approach would be if breeders stopped cranking so many of them out. You know, as I said a couple of minutes ago, they, they breed them, so many of them, uh, and then keep a couple of the good ones and, and then get rid of the rest of them. And, and as you mentioned, a lot of these are, are very healthy. They're former racehorses, horses that didn't win their race. So send them to the – we don't have glue factories for these horses anymore, but send them to the slaughterhouse so some Belgian or Japanese guy can eat them on a plate. I, I, it's just – you know, uh, you know. I guess at one point in our our history, there, that horses were a source of food, but we don't look at them that way anymore. Culturally, we don't see them that way. They're pets. They're companions. I mean, literally, they are the horses we rode in on. Without horses, we would never have settled the West, or it wouldn't have happened the same way. And uh, and contrary to the arguments that are made about the Mustangs, horses are native to North America. They were born here. They evolved here and then spread to the rest of the world. They're not an invasive species. This is where they came from. This is their natural environment. They were wiped out about 7,000 years ago. We're not exactly sure why, but we're pretty sure the humans had something to do with it. And then they were reintroduced. Um, I've been covering the, the wild Mustang issues for more than 20 years. It's very emotional. There are those on the one side that think that there is there should be no management whatsoever, and I'm not one of those. I'm an animal welfare guy, of course, but I, I recognize that sometimes the numbers can get out of uh, out of hand, and then in that case, you, you do need to round them up and and put them somewhere, and there should be a good, healthy adoption program. Uh, and the same thing should be done with discarded uh, uh, domestic horses. There should be something happen to them other than grounding them into hamburger or dog food. If these breeders would just uh, slow down just a little bit, there'd be enough of a balance where you wouldn't have to send so many 10000 a month across the border to be carved into meat. Right. Now, didn't you do some investigative work on the uh, Mustangs, the wild Mustangs, where you thought BP was involved in some way about um, uh, making sure the Mustangs go away? Yeah, there's a giant pipeline that is uh, is underway. It's being built in northern Nevada. And just, uh, you know, coincidentally, completely unrelated, the BLM said, we got to clear the wild Mustangs out of the area where this uh, pipeline was going to be built. It's not a BP pipeline, but it's being built. Uh, uh, BP will be the primary beneficiary of this thing. It's 650 miles long. It goes right through horse territory, right through several herd management areas, pristine, undisturbed country, if they would just move the proposed route just a little bit, it, it could uh, go along roads that are already carved through that area, would not uh, disturb the horde, herd areas. You wouldn't have to round up a bunch of horses, but of course, BLM is not going to make changes or require changes of these big oil companies because they're basically in cahoots. Big oil, big natural gas, they get what they want from our public land, same as mining companies. Uh, the environment, the animals, the plants, all that stuff takes a backseat to those interests every single time. And that's what happened with this proposed pipeline up there. As I said, it's not a BP pipeline, but BP would have uh, would have made billions and billions of dollars once this thing is built. And they could have just made minor changes, and it wouldn't have had to affect the horses at all. Instead, uh, they rounded them up. Calico, the Calico Roundup last winter, uh, a year ago this month, it was the bloodiest roundup in memory in modern times. Dozens and dozens of horses died. It was conducted right in the dead of winter, the coldest month. They were warned, look, don't run these horses over miles and miles of volcanic rock that's covered with, uh, with snow. It's a bad idea. They did it anyway. And so many of these horses died. Uh, more than 40 mares aborted. 
uh, a lot of the uh, deaths came days after the horses were rounded up. Some of them came into the, the corrals with their, literally, stumps where their hooves used to be. They'd run them off, run their feet off uh, over these volcanic rocks. It was just horrible. It didn't have to happen. Oh, that is terrible. I just, yeah. I, I am a big advocate of animals, so, I, and I know you are too. I know how uh, upsetting that must have been to you to cover that. That, oh, terrible. It, Listen, was, it was. You know, we, I'm sorry, we raised the ahead. subject on Coast to Coast. I sort of raise it every once in a while and, and give the, re, the listeners an update. And it's not a traditional topic for Coast to Coast. You know, it's not UFOs or poltergeists or something like that. But it is something that I think most of the listeners seem to have an interest in. Even if they don't care about horses, it's their tax dollars. It's 70 or million dollars a year or so that basically is squandered on a really crummy program, poorly managed with poor goals. And uh, and it, with just a little bit of tweaking, it would, could be good for the horses, for the land, and for the public. And they they just uh, they would rather react to the criticism by digging in their heels and and fighting against the wild horse advocates. And a lot of it is just strictly emotional. You know, it's too bad. It really is. On another subject here, you've done really well reporting on fringe elements and there's a lot of uh, journalists that shy away especially from the UFO topic what do you uh, attribute your success to well I don't know I guess uh, you could look at it different ways uh, you know I was lucky in that I worked for KLAS uh, I had been here in town in Las Vegas reporting mainstream sort of stories political corruption organized crime uh, people knew me. They knew I was a, a fairly good reporter, that I, I, I was straight with it, the facts, and I, I dug stuff up that other people couldn't get. So I had a track record before I jumped right into the deep end of the pool about UFOs. Uh, I had never had a particular interest in UFOs, had never done any research, um, and a guy walked into my office, his name was John Lear. Now that's a whole different story, how I got started on it. Why my uh, I, I didn't I, I've been successful at it is because I had the support of my employer. Um, we started doing stories about Area 51 and Bob Lazar. They were a big hit with the audience. I mean, people could not get enough of it. There was clearly we had our finger on the pulse of the public when we reported this in a straight news program in a straight news format, and uh, you know it drove my competitors crazy. The guys at the newspaper made fun of me. They've had uh, I've had so many editorial cartoons. Uh, showing me with a butterfly net chasing uh, chasing flying saucers and things of that sort, columns that uh, make fun of my name, kidnapped by aliens, uh, media columnists who uh, say they rush home at night to, to see my stories because they can't wait to see me go bull goose loony right on the air. I mean, I'm, I'm a public figure in my hometown. I understand that this comes with the territory. What always bothered me is that all these critics, the other media people who just couldn't stand me covering this stuff, it drove them crazy, had never done the work themselves, and it was always easier for them to make fun of it, to crank out some wisecracks, to talk about the UFO guy with the beanie on his head or somebody wearing a, an alien mask and, and make fun of it and refer to uh, an Elvis sighting or Bigfoot or Loch Ness and make fun of it rather than do the work. Do Look at the documents, look at the paper trail, interview the witnesses, go out to a place like Area 51 and see it for yourself and that's what always drove me crazy. So, you know, I, I did not go into it lightly. I knew that there would be repercussions career-wise, and there have been. I think uh, because of the fact that I'm, uh, I have dived into this 
uh, head first and for so long that there's a probably a ceiling on how high I could go in journalism to begin with. No network's going to hire a crazy UFO reporter, but that's okay with me. Uh, I'm happy to have stayed in Las Vegas. I get a great deal of freedom to pursue the stories that interest me, and, and the UFO stuff is something that interests me. And it interests me, um, and I don't care what the fellow journalists say. That's not my audience. That's not who I write stories for. I, I write it for the TV viewers and, and radio listeners, and, and those are the people who can't get enough of it. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there has been downsides, and I've taken a lot of shots over the years, as, I'm, as I know you have, Angela, but I, I don't care. I mean, in, in some ways, it almost makes it better and more appealing, the fact that others are afraid to tackle it, uh, afraid of the personal uh, ramifications for their careers. Uh, that's their problem. You know? I feel that a lot of the mainstream uh, media is now waking up to the ratings they get when they're covering UFO things. How do, do you feel that or not? Well, I do, uh, yes and no. I mean, it is true. I remember 48 hours, the CBS News Magazine came out here. They were going to do an hour on UFO stuff, and Area 51 was one of the things they were going to cover. And these correspondents basically had to be dragged kicking and screaming into doing it because they know that there was no upside for their careers. And they had the biggest rating that they ever had for that for that show, 48 hours in the program they did about UFOs. Uh, ABC's Peter Jennings, they did the special, uh, maybe one, more than one, and they did it for the rating spike. And, and you would see in the, uh, around the country uh, during sweeps months, uh, different local TV stations doing a little UFO thing, and it works. It does. It gets a reaction out of the public. But you can't just do it as a, as a ratings gimmick. You can't do it as a one-time special because, as you know, Angela, there's a steep learning curve in this. It's not as simple as lights in the sky or uh, stories about aliens abducting people. It is a complicated topic, multifaceted, multi-layered, and you've got a lot of homework to do before you get your head around the thing. It's not, it's not simple at all. So trying to take it on for a one-time project does not work. It has to be a long-term kind of a thing. You have to take your time and get to know it and get to know the players, who's credible, who isn't, which cases are credible, which ones aren't. So the fact that uh, that some mainstream media outlets are encouraged by the rating spike, that's a good thing. Uh, but the fact that they don't stick with it is what bothers me. And they, and they don't because it's, you know, they see it as poison. They, they see it as, uh, it's almost like, um, you know, a candy or something. It's, it's nice for a while, but you can't make a steady diet out of it. And that's too bad because I personally believe that it's a very important topic. Uh, that it, there are a few topics that would be more important that if we ever had confirmed contact with an alien intelligence or some other level of intelligence, something smarter than us, it would be the most profound news story in human history. In historical development, it would change everything. The fact that uh, so few network-level reporters or big-time newspaper guys take it seriously is bothersome, and it's too bad because if they did, if networks, CBS or the New York Times, took the time and, and put some resources into it instead of leaving it to, you know, small fry like you and I, then, um, then it, it would make a big difference in a short period of time. And, and our elected officials and military officials could not so easily write it off or ignore it or dismiss it. You know, we're coming up on the three-year anniversary of the Stephenville sightings. That will be uh, three years this Saturday. Uh, 
And for me, what you were saying about it takes a lot of homework and a lot of research, that's been the hardest uh, part for me because I wasn't interested in this either. And then when I started looking into it and found all the stories and all the the stuff that you've got to wade through and, and figure it all out, it was it has been very difficult for me. It was sort of a baptize, baptism by fire for me. But, and it changed uh, your life, didn't it? I mean, obviously, it changed your life. Your decision to go ahead with the reporting on it and being honest about it turned your world upside down, didn't it? Oh, yes. And, and the world of those witnesses. Um, it's just been an incredible ride. I certainly wouldn't be here talking to you now <laughs> on this show if that hadn't happened. Um, but I can't say I'm not sorry it happened. I'm I'm glad. I've met some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life doing this. Um, I've gotten a lot of support. Uh, I don't think there's one country that I could go to where somebody wouldn't welcome me in uh, with open arms. So, in in that respect, it's been good. In uh, the other respect, is I write from home now. I don't have an office to go to. So, there you go. Yeah, well, I'm I'm sort of of the same mind. I would never, uh, I would not change course. I would not make that decision differently. If I had to do over again, I would do the same thing. It's changed my life in many ways, but almost always all for the good. And like you, I've, I've it's taken me all over the world. I, I know people all over the world. They know me as well, which is kind of cool. Um, it, it may have had some ramifications uh, ultimately to the uh, upper tiers of where my career could go, but I don't mind. I, I was not all that ambitious to go anywhere else anyway but as you mentioned it is a it is perilous turf uh there are pitfalls in this area there are so many colorful characters you know it, one reason it is so easy to dismiss ufos is because it does attract an element of people who are truly unhinged you go to these ufo conferences and people there are a, a strong contingent of folks who walk around sort of a wide-eyed stare they are not particularly discriminating in terms of what information they consider to be credible and 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 uh, what is not credible, and uh, they'll almost buy anything. People see if somebody sees a light in the sky, well, it must be a UFO, which means an alien craft, and that's just not the case. And the same is true for uh, the credibility of the people involved. There are those who get into this field because they want to be big shots, or they like to have, uh, you know, they like to say outrageous things, get media attention, or they try to want to make a lot of money, sell a UFO book. Not many people make much money on UFOs. I can think of three or four people who are able to make even a decent or, um, um, you know, poverty level uh, living on it, and they ha have to work really hard. But there are some outright charlatans in the field who will make stuff up, say anything to get attention, and I'm sure you've run into several of those. Oh, yes, I have. And especially when I was in uh, San Jose, California, all all of the conferences I had been to before that one had been fairly tame, but uh, then you, there, there were people in costumes and this sort of thing, and I noticed um, uh, the media people that were there they went right to those people in costume or the people saying, you know, uh, I've been abducted, I have an implant, um, and, and they didn't have any sort of medical paperwork with them to back that up or anything at all, but that's who the media went to. 
and I was really uh, going, gosh, what is going on here? I mean, over here, uh, you've got these generals and admirals and people sitting here, and the media just ignored them, but they went right to the tinfoil hat people. It's like uh, water going downhill looking for the path of least resistance. That's how journalism works, too. A TV station sends some crew out here. Here's your assignment. Cover the UFO conference. They look for the easy angle, which is the colorful, crazy person in a UFO beanie and an alien mask who will tell a story. I've, I've been to those conferences where people claim to be aliens. I'm, I'm here from Venus. Or I was on a talk show one time, Montel Williams, and I came on late in the show right after a panel of people who claimed that they were earthbound extraterrestrials they're not aliens now they were aliens in a previous lifetime and i'm supposed to to speak credibly uh, about uh, ufos after following something like that no standards mm-hmm. evidence so there's a lot of that in the field and and anyone can be a ufologist poof you just declare yourself one and suddenly you are uh, a lot of folks in the field have worked at it for a long time to gain credibility they would like to hold it to the same kind of standards that mainstream science is held to, but the fact is there are no such standards. That Anyone can get into it. Anyone can make a splash, uh, especially now with the Internet. You know, all kinds of crazy stuff gets floated out there. And you know what? Uh, we can get into this later in the program, but I think our government and people who don't want the topic to be taken seriously are happy about that. They take advantage of it. Uh, they're glad that the emphasis is on the nutballs and crazies, uh, because it makes it easier to keep people like the New York Times or CBS News from really looking into it. Oh, I agree. And now we're going to take a short break, and uh, we will be back. When we come back, George and I are going to discuss more things that I'm sure you're going to enjoy. We'll talk about Skinwalker Ranch and Bob Lazar. Hang on. Are you tired of listening to the same old talk radio? Then tune in to the Joyner Report every Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time with Angela Joyner for some thought-provoking conversation. The Joyner Report on the Inception Radio Network every Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Hey guys, Jimmy Havikin here for Inception Radio Network. Just giving you a quick rundown of our scheduled shows and when they can be heard. Tom Donahue, Freethinker Radio, is on every day from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern live weekdays, best of weekends. Mondays, we have Jerry Pippen specials, 9 p.m. Eastern time. Tuesdays, Inception Radio, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Wednesdays, UFO Traffic Report with Roger Marsh and Michael Rambacher, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Thursdays, The Joyner Report with Angela Joyner starts at 8.30 p.m. till 10 p.m. Fridays, we're back on Inception Radio. Saturdays, West Georgia Paranormal at noon to 2. Then Future Theater with Bill and Nancy Burns at 6 p.m. Sundays, of course, Paranormal Guys with MJ and Adam the Skeptic. That's our quick rundown. I'll see you there.
This is Myron from West Georgia Paranormal Radio. Be sure to join us every Saturday from noon until 2 p.m. when We will talk to all the people in the paranormal field from UFO hunters to ghost hunters, psychics, you name it. So tune in on the Inception Radio Network every Saturday from noon until 2 p.m. Welcome back to the Joiner Report. We're interviewing George Knapp, having a wonderful conversation at Inception Radio Network. First inaugural show here. I'm having a great time. And uh, George, are you still with me? I am, Angela. I wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't go anywhere. All right. Listen, you spent a lot of time at Skinwalker Ranch, right? Yes. What is one, just 
one thing that just you really couldn't believe just weirded you out? Well, I didn't have any uh, paranormal experiences myself. I've been there probably 12 or 13 different times uh, over the past uh, few years. Uh, and it never had anything to me. And for a long time, uh, the owner of the property, Bob Bigelow, had never had anything happen to him either. It was very frustrating. But so many other people had had experiences. I think I think the one that we mentioned at the beginning of the book, uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker, is, is sort of unsettling. And it sort of set the tone for the whole investigation that would be to follow. Uh, in fact, if you could say, without any exaggeration, that this property is the most intensely investigated paranormal hotspot in the history of the world because there was a team of scientists there and researchers for a period of more than seven years on the property 24 7 uh different kinds of monitoring gear and cameras looking for whatever might happen and they they had a heck of a lot of stuff hundreds of different things that happened to them uh, i'll set the stage this way there was a the property had been vacant for a number of years it's uh, several hundred acres in a picturesque part of northeastern utah in the Uinta Basin, which uh, for many, many, for as long as anyone can remember, had been something of a UFO hotspot. There was a, a book written back in the 70s, uh, the Utah UFO Display, based on the research of a guy named uh, uh, Junior uh, Hicks, who had lived in the area, taught science, knew everybody in the basin. And there had been, it was hard to find, in fact, it still is hard to find anybody who had not seen something weird. UFOs, Bigfoot, those kinds of things. Uh, the epicenter of it all seemed to be this one particular ranch property where I can't even describe, it's like a paranormal Disneyland, all the things that had happened there. It was like, uh, you know, wow. choose one from column A and one from column B. UFOs of every size and stripe, Bigfoot, uh, poltergeist, animal mutilations and disappearances, all kinds of really strange stuff. Well, this one family uh, bought this property, didn't know much about its history. The first day that they're moving in, uh, they're unloading their stuff out of trucks. The, the father, who is a, is a college-educated guy, a uh, smart, uh, world-class hunter. Um, his wife was a professional woman, worked in a bank. Their two kids were both straight-A students. This was their dream property. They're unloading their stuff, and they see something out on the tree line, a large animal. It looks like a canine. They thought it was a dog at first. Then they saw, saw it's a wolf. It's huge, just bigger than any wolf anyone had ever seen any of them had ever seen anyway, and it starts walking toward him. And the rancher kind of commented to his father, who was helping him move the stuff, gosh, I didn't know there were wolves in that area, this area. Well, there hadn't been wolves in that area for hundreds of years. This thing starts walking toward him, kind of sidling its eyes downcast, almost like it's tame. And they commented, well, guys, this must be somebody's pet wolf that got out. It walks up to him, and it rained that day. And uh, they recall uh, commenting to each other that there was a smell of a wet dog. You know what that smell is like, of a wet dog out there. And sure. that's what this wolf smelled like. It walks right into the family and, uh, and and sort of rubs against their legs. And they were kind of being wary, weren't quite sure what to expect, but it was tame, not threatening. And um, there's a corral right there where they're unpacking their, their stuff right next to the, the entrance to the farmhouse. And they had put these calves in this corral. This wolf looks over. I'll back up for a second. The back of this wolf came up to the middle of the chest of, of the rancher, and he's over six feet tall. So this is an incredibly large wolf, must have weighed a couple hundred pounds. It sees these calves, and one of the calves stuck its, its nose, its snout, out through the bars of this cage, which was a bad decision. 
this wolf springs into the air, leaps like 15 feet in the air, comes down and chomps on this calf's uh, a snout and tries to start pulling it out of the bar. It's going to take off with it. The calf is making all this noise, bleeding in, in terror and starting to bleed. The rancher grabs a big axe handle that had been sitting up against a post and and beats this wolf on the back, going to try to make it let go of this calf, which is worth a lot of money. The wolf doesn't even blink. He hits it again two or three times. It doesn't make a sound, doesn't even react as if it could feel anything. The rancher sends his kid over and says, go grab the gun, the pistol's in the, in the glove box of my truck, which is, you know, 20 feet away. The kid goes and grabs it, brings it back to his, his uh, dad. It's a... Uh, it's a powerful handgun, 357 Magnum. The dad pumps a bullet into this wolf. Again, not a reaction at all. Shoots it a second and a third time, and, and it barely registers any reaction whatsoever. He sends his dad to the house to get a 30 6 a very powerful gun, a weapon that could bring down an elk at 100 yards, and he shoots this thing. Now, this is the fourth shot, and when he shoots it with this 30 6 the wolf lets go of the calf and looks at him just looks at him. And there's no blood uh, at all. The wolf is not in pain, is not showing any kind of distress. So the rancher shoots him again, and again the same reaction. He shoots one more, he says, gets the family out of the way, puts one more shot into right in the middle of this wolf's chest, and uh, a chunk of fur and flesh flies off and lands in the grass. The wolf just kind of looks at him, turns around, and heads back across the pasture at a slow trot, heading back toward the direction where it came. They all look at each other like, what the heck is going on here? So the rancher realizes, I can't leave this wounded animal with something this big and this strong wandering around on the property. They grabbed another gun, and he and his kid go after it. They go across this, this meadow, this pasture, into the tree line. There's a, this, this part of the property is bordered by uh, a stream that runs pretty much year-round, and the, the, water, the, the soil is really uh, muddy. So they're going through this thick brush, having no trouble following where the wolf goes because it's it's so heavy, it's 150, 200 pounds, that it's leaving footprints, paw prints, two, three inches deep in the mud. They're following it. They catch occasional glimpses of the thing. They come up to a clearing. It's about 30 yards across, no trees, just clear, uh, muddy part, a riverbank area next to this creek. The tracks go right out of the middle of it, and they stop this thing is gone. It just like vanished into thin air um, in the middle of this mud. There's no other tracks that lead anywhere, just like it just ceased to exist or was sucked up into the air. The rancher and the kid are looking at each other like, what the heck are we going to do? They start walking back. Look, what We have to come up with a story to tell your mom. They're going to be freaked out about it. And they walk back. He, he finds the chunk of fur that had flown off after that last shot, and it smells like it's rotten meat, like it had been out in the in the sun for a couple of weeks or something, just sitting there rotten. Now, if he had yeah. kept that chunk of meat and fur, we might have had a, a solution to the mystery, but he didn't. This family is not, they're smart, but they're not UFO or paranormal investigators. They're not, they don't know what lies ahead, so they didn't save it. Um, anyway, that was the beginning. This bulletproof wolf was the first day on the property. It set off a, a, a series of events that become increasingly weird, and the, the weirdest thing of all, is that nothing ever repeated itself the same way. Of the hundreds of incidents that were seen by these, the ranch family, by the NID scientists, by their neighbors, uh, nothing was ever the same. It was as if something was playing games with their mind, showing them glimpses of other realities, to borrow a phrase from Linda Howe, 
uh, and just really mess with them. My friends, uh, a, a, an organization called NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science, it was established by a billionaire businessman from Las Vegas named Bob Bigelow, Robert Bigelow, who's a friend of mine, who's had a long-standing interest in these topics. I think Bob Bigelow has probably spent more money out of his own pocket on UFO and paranormal research than any single person in the history of the world. So he set up this NIDS organization, recruited top-notch scientists, a lot of people who had worked for intelligence agencies, just really good minds who didn't necessarily want their names uh, used in public, so he kept it kind of quiet what they were doing. They did have a website, they would publish papers here and there, but basically they wanted to do the research and then figured they would announce findings later on. Well, they kept, caught wind of the stories about the ranch because as, as the events continued and got weirder and weirder, the rancher uh, talked to a reporter from the local paper. It made it into the, the paper about some things that had happened that I can tell you about. Bob Bigelow caught wind about it. He flew up to the ranch, met the rancher. By the time he and his team arrived up there, this family was so terrorized after four or five months of this nonstop paranormal activity, they were all sleeping in the same room on the floor for protection. Ah, uh, the, the, kids had, the kids had basically almost, were close to failing, dropping out of school. The mom had lost her job at the bank. They were a wreck. They were ready to get out. And my friend bought the ranch. He installed, uh, he set up his own headquarters up there, had his team on the property for the next seven years investigating just a, a litany of stuff that became weirder and weirder as time went on. Now, Bigelow is a little publicity shy. Have you ever interviewed him on the air? I have. I, I did the first television interview with him a couple of years ago, uh, Bob Bigelow sp put up $500 million of his own money to build his own space program. Uh, he saw a niche, uh, you know, he believes that space exploration is, is good, that the development of space, commercial development of space is a good thing, uh, that perhaps it's inevitable. He was hoping that NASA would get out of the way so that he could, uh, you know, go into space, build hotels in space. Uh, basically, he would provide facilities there's not enough space in space. So, you know, these, these, the, the space station itself is pretty small. Uh, America, which put $100 billion into this thing, gets like 12 seats, 12 visits a, a year. Now we have no space shuttles. So we have no way to get there. Bigelow wanted to create uh, these floating habitats in space. They could be hotels, research labs, facilities where countries which don't have their own space programs but want them could basically do a space program, put an astronaut up there on the cheap. So it's a great idea. He's put all this money into it. He had this this um, fac uh, facility that he's built in Las Vegas. I'm, in fact, I'm going to go see it again next week and do a little update on it. And it's an amazing accomplishment. He now has two floating satellites in space that he put up there, and one of my uh, one of them has my business card floating around in it in the in the weightlessness of space. But that's another story. Anyway, well, Bob cool. is uh, yeah. He was forced because he had to have credibility on Wall Street. And with NASA, he was sort of forced to do some interviews, uh, though he didn't like it. He did one with the Wall Street Journal, and then the first one he did on television was with me. And um, I talked strictly about the space program. Later, I came back, and we talked about the ranch, his interest in UFOs. And then I had him on Coast to Coast twice, and he's a fascinating man. He's a brilliant man, but he doesn't like publicity. He likes to be able to walk around in Las Vegas, go to the grocery store, 
not have to worry about somebody kidnapping him or his wife or something or trying to rob him or stick him up. So he has been publicity shy, which has has, uh, fueled all sorts of speculation. Well, he must be a mafia guy. He's got money from drugs or uh, all this crazy stuff that is completely not true. He's a very normal guy, uh, a very savvy guy who just happens to be ridiculously wealthy and and is spending his money trying to resolve these really interesting mysteries that you and I uh, find so fascinating. Does he have bodyguards? Uh, he has bodyguards at time. He has the, his facility out there in North Las Vegas is very well protected. It's like a mini Area 51. In fact, a lot of the guys who work there used to work at Area 51. They, they recruits a special forces guy, former police officers, and when he travels, he often has bodyguards. Yes. And he has two satellites. Uh, you say so. Has he seen? Uh, UFOs from those satellites? I mean, it seems like that would give you the best possible chance. That was what he was thinking, and they are all, both of them have multiple cameras, both inside and outside, but no, to my knowledge, no, they have never detected anything that qualifies as a UFO. I don't, I don't think that Bob has personally ever seen a UFO or anything like it, although other members of his family have seen them. Um, he has always been fascinated by it. It's kind of frustrating for the, for a guy who spent so many millions of dollars on it to not have a personal experience. And I think that was part of the reason that he bought the ranch, not only to study it, but also to see if he could finally have an experience himself. And to my knowledge, that has not happened. Are there still people at Skinwalker Ranch that work for him, or is that pretty much over with? Well, there are. There are uh, there are people who are up there, the caretakers for the property, but the, the science uh, team, the the team of NIDS that had been there for all those years, it no longer exists. Uh, a lot of what happened was kind of frustrating for them. As I mentioned, so many of the experiences that they personally had, these are PhD-level scientists, very weird experiences that I can tell you about in some detail. They personally had these things. That they figured, what can we do with it? We can't publish it. If we write a report on this, we'll never work again in science. People will think we're crazy. None of it was ev- ever replicated. None of it ever did anything the same way. They set up cameras where activity had happened the night before. They point the cameras in one direction. Suddenly the stuff happens in the other direction just out of camera reach. Uh, there was one incident toward the end of the seven-year study where something went up these telephone poles where these uh, cameras were and ripped the guts out of them. Uh, they realized, well, look, we've got a camera that should be able to see whatever it was. Let's back up the videotape and we'll figure it out. They back up the videotape and whatever it was that went up this pole, 30-foot-high pole with uh, with wires that went all the way down that were very uh, strongly taped all the way down into the ground, ripped all this up, uh, tore it up. Something had to be really strong to do it, but it was invisible. I mean, there was a tiny little speck of blue light that they were able to see under high magnification and special analysis, but whatever did it was invisible. And that, whatever this thing was, an it or a they, it played mind games, both with the ranchers and with the scientists. Uh, sometimes it would speak to them. It would tell them that they were not welcome. It would scare the hell out of people. The ranch family, for example, uh, after that incident with the, the bulletproof wolf, they had a whole series of stuff that would happen closer to poltergeist activity than UFO activity, the traditional UFO stuff. Uh, the rancher was using a post hole digger to dig holes in the ground to put posts in for fencing. He stops for a second, wipes his brow, takes a drink of water, 
the, the post hole digger that had been in his hands all morning is gone. It vanishes. And he finds it two weeks later, 75 feet up in a cottonwood tree. Uh, his <laughs> wife it goes grocery shopping. She buys enough food for the family for a couple of weeks. She comes home, puts the bags on the table in the kitchen, unloads all the stuff, puts it in the cupboard, walks out of the room for a second, comes back in 30 seconds later, all the foods out of the cupboards back into the, into the bags. Um, frying pans would disappear. Uh, things would end up in the freezer or the microwave. She would take a, the wife would take a shower every morning. She goes into the bathroom, locks the door. She puts a, a hairbrush uh, on top of a towel on top of the cabinet there for when she gets out of the shower. She gets out of the shower. The door's still locked. The hairbrush and the towel are gone. The hairbrush she finds later in the microwave. You know, nobody got in there. No commando got in there to mess with them. Uh, no, her family didn't do it. The door is still locked. Weird stuff like that. They start hearing uh, voices at night, voices that seem to come right out of the sky, some strange, unintelligible language that sort of laughs at them and mocks them. They start hearing heavy footsteps at night on the, on the ground outside their window. Then they start seeing shadowy kind of figures, large shadowy figures peeking in the windows at night. Then they start seeing them uh, in the house uh, at the bottom of their bed when they wake up in the middle of the night freaking them out. Um, then they started uh, seeing the UFO incident, uh, kind of different kinds of craft. The first one they saw was like a, um, what they call a chupa. It looked like a big RV, like a big Winnebago. And it got down into the, the third homestead on their property. If it's a Winnebago, it would have to go by their house. There's only one way in and one way out of the property. Somehow it was down there. It looked like headlights pointing toward, back toward the rancher and his kitty said, how the heck did those guys get down in there? Well, let's go down there and help them out. They must be stuck. Suddenly the headlights start coming towards them. This thing is moving toward them uh, as if it's driving across the, the, uh, the range. And all of a sudden, boom, it starts rising up into the sky above the cottonwoods, and poof, it's gone. Uh, they started seeing these things that look like sombreros fly right into the, the ridge, the Skinwalker Ridge. Then they started seeing these balls of light. At first, it was these white balls of light flitting in and out of the trees, uh, almost as if they were intelligently controlled. Then they started seeing these, these red things that would uh, just scare the heck, just terrorize cattle and horses, uh, stampeded a bunch of horses or cattle off of, a, off of a little cliff and damaged a lot of them, broken legs and things of that sort. Then these blue things started appearing, which I had called the, the blue meanies, and they seemed to have some kind of an effect on the fight-or-flight uh, response inside the cerebral cortex. I mean, because they would... Uh, they they could make somebody scared to death in just a blink of an instant. I mean, they're scary enough by themselves because they get right up in the faces of animals and people, but somehow they exaggerated the fear response way out of proportion, and they, they would literally drive people right to their knees. These things would uh, were really scary. The rancher uh, is, is talking to my friend Bigelow one night on the telephone. He has these great big country dogs, hunting dogs, uh, big, strong country animals, you know what they're like, they can take on anything, and yes. one of these blue meanies is sort of, one of these blue meanies is sort of leading them out across the pasture, just staying just a little bit out of the range of their snapping jaws, drawing them across the pasture in the same area where that wolf had appeared. The rancher says, hey look, something's happening here, i got to get off the phone, and he hangs up, and just at that point, the, the dogs go out of sight into the, into the tree and brush line. And the rancher hears this, these shrieks, these screams of the animals. 
Uh, the rancher sort of looked for a while, didn't want to go too far because he wasn't quite sure what had happened, but go, went looking the next morning, and all he ever found was these three greasy spots, which he equated with some hair in, hair in them, that he figured his dogs had been incinerated. They were gone. They, they started having uh, cats and things be mutilated or disappeared. Eight or nine cats disappeared one night. And then the cattle started being cut up. Uh, calves that were cut up in the in the middle of the night, uh, they were hunkered down in a barn. There's snow on the ground, but no no footprints. Uh, cows that well, would can, walk into a snowbank and disappear. You can certainly see why that family wanted out of there. Um, we've oh, got yeah. a question from the chat room, and they're asking, are skinwalkers native only to a certain part of the globe, or are they found everywhere, or do you know? Well, I can tell you what the lore is, and you know, when we titled this thing Hunt for the Skinwalker, it was sort of a catch-all title, meaning we, the, the skinwalker in this case is whatever the blanket explanation is for what was going on in this area. The uh, Several Native American tribes had their own skinwalker lore, and basically a skinwalker is an evil presence, a, a sorcerer, uh, a witch. Uh, to become a skinwalker, it's said you have to kill someone, murder someone uh, in your own family. And that's what the Indians becomes, called them, right? That's an Indian right, name. What, okay. Right. Navajo, the Hopi, uh, the Utes, they all have their own versions of these stories. But essentially, Skinwalker is an evil sorcerer. He can control the minds of men and women. He can assume the shapes of different animals. That's the, thus the term. Uh, take the shape of a bear, a, a wolf, a coyote, a bird. Um, that is the legend, anyway. The Navajo, who lived in a, an area of Colorado an area of high strangeness known as the, the San Luis Valley, which is sort of like their Garden of Eden, tell a story uh, about the Utes. The Utes had worked with the as allies of the Spanish and, uh, and helped wage war on different tribes, and they helped drive the Navajo out of the San Luis Valley. And, and the story that the Utes tell, uh, the Utes are the, the, the predominant tribe that lives in the Uinta Basin, is that the Navajo put a curse on them. Because of what they did in Colorado, the Navajo essentially sent a skinwalker to who forever torment them. So the explanation right. about uh, what was going on at the ranch property and in the basin comes from the Utes. Junior Hicks is the guy that told me this story. He said that that skinwalker ridge up there, this red sandstone ridge on one side of the, the ranch property, I said, well, how did it get its name? Was, well, it's from a skinwalker. The Utes believe that this particular property is in the path of the skinwalker, meaning skinwalkers come and go through here. That was the Ute's explanation for why so much weird crap had happened at this particular property. They said, well, that must be a skinwalker, and that's the story they always told. Well, you know, it, it was their blanket explanation. It became our blanket term for what had gone on there. I don't know that skinwalkers are real. I don't know that they have them all over the world. I know there are different versions of them. You could equate them with uh, the jinn, you know, with witches that other cultures right. embrace. Um, so... They, there are shapeshifter legends in pretty much every culture on Earth. Uh, every every culture on every continent has their own stories of werewolves and things of that sort, um, and different kinds of uh, people who can assume different kinds of animal forms. And that's the version that was was told here. Uh, again, it was a sort of a, a catchy title to use. I don't know that there is such a thing as a skinwalker, but there is something very weird that that exists on that property. And skinwalkers is as good an explanation as any. I've got a couple of more questions here before we move on to uh, Lazar. 
Uh, one of the people in the chat wants to know, um, this is from Antos, what was left out of the book and why? Not much was left out. Uh, we, you know, Colin Kelleher and I, Dr. Kelleher was one of the scientists who's probably the guy who spent more time on the property except for the people who lived there, the ranching family, than anyone. He oversaw all the reports that came in. Uh, I was, because I was friends with Bob Bigelow and, and with Colum, I got to see these things as they were coming in over the years, and it drove me crazy because I was sworn to secrecy. I couldn't say anything, uh, and, and until... Uh, the only reason I got to do it is because the activity died down. The, the Whatever this presence is, this intelligence, it got tired of being stalked. It didn't like having tables turned on it, having these scientists out there looking for whatever it was, and it kind of went underground, uh, hoping that they would go away, which is what they eventually did. They allowed me to write about it because uh, they hoped it would rekindle some interest in, in some activity. There is a, an interactive quality uh, to what went on at the ranch, when a newcomer like me would arrive, uh, supposedly that would get things going again. They hoped also that by writing about it, I'd be allowed, to, uh, I might get ideas about where other hot spots around the country uh, were with similar kinds of activities, and that worked to some extent. So you know, I, I was allowed to, to write about it. They, I think probably a lot of them regret that, uh, that it came uh, out in, in, and it was so popular because as a result, I mean, the ranch has been overrun by crazy people, by UFO nuts, by just people that like to go out there and get drunk, throw beer cans around. They walk up to the property in the middle of the night and take flash photos. It's a wonder somebody hasn't been shot. Uh, there are no major incidents that happened at the, at the ranch that we left out. There might be a couple of minor ones because there were just so many that, uh, that we couldn't include them all, but none of the major okay. stories were left out. I, okay. you know, I, I, we debated about what to include. There were some of them that were so weird, I thought, gosh, if we put this one in, nobody's going <laughs> to believe us. And I'll give you an example of that. Two Indian uh, police officers, BIA Indian officers, drove up to the, uh, were making a patrol in that area because the whole ranch is surrounded by Indian land, reservation land. They drive around the bend on this dirt road right to the entrance of the ranch, and they see two figures standing over, uh, standing in the middle of the road at night, pitch dark, they're wearing dark, long trench coats and smoking cigarettes. And as they come around, their, high, their headlights illuminate these guys. The, the, the two guys turn around and look at them, and they have dog faces. They're dogs standing there smoking cigarettes. These Indians look at each other like, holy crap, did you see this? They look around, and the guys are gone. They walk over to the site, and they see some footprints, look like human footprints. There, there are two burning cigarettes laying on the, on the, in the dirt, but these dog guys are gone. They just vanished. That faces was a, 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 a story. Yeah, faces of dogs. And we've since learned that there are lots of stories like that uh, across the American Southwest where other people have seen dog faces on, on human-like uh, figures. Um, but that was a story we had to wonder, well, look, if we tell this, people are going to think we're crazy. But we figured we got to lay it out. We've just got to be honest. We don't have any answers to explain what had gone on there. So we might as well tell the whole story, and maybe somebody else can come up with something. So we didn't leave any major thing out. There might be some minor stuff, but nothing real good and juicy. All right. There are, uh, next question is, there are people in the UFO community that feel like Bigelow is collecting information, like he has a lot, a lot of information on UFOs and what goes on. 
but he's sitting on it. He doesn't share it, and he doesn't publish it. Can you address that? Well, I think that there's there is some truth in that, but I think it generally it's unfair. I mean, yeah, he you know Bob, for example, before he created NIDS, he offered a million dollars to the three major UFO organizations and said, "Look, I'll put up the money. You guys select the cases. We'll send investigators out in the field." And we'll get to the bottom of some of these things, but you have to get along. You have to agree on it. And, of course, you know what ufology is like. Nobody gets along. Everybody hates each other. Everybody thinks they're right and the other guy is wrong, so it collapsed. Um, and, you know, a lot of that research, nothing ever became of it. The same was true for NIDS. He would send investigators out uh, to research cases, most of which turned out to be no good. Well, he, did, he didn't publish that stuff. The Skinwalker case would be an exception to the rule. I mean, a lot of what NIDS did, for example, they did a very comprehensive study of these flying black triangles, and they put it on their website. They did a lot of analysis of cattle mutilation cases. They had a fast response team that when there would be a cattle mutilation case, they'd get on a plane, they'd go right to it, they had did a necropsy, and they would publish all those results. Uh, a lot of results that didn't get published is because there was nothing really to say. The exception to that was the Skinwalker Ranch, and they realized that it was a unique place, that uh, whatever was going on there, it was not a standard UFO case. They wanted to be able to study it without a lot of interference. Now, they did, at one point, make a public proclamation in the area around the ranch, in the Uinta Basin, because they needed the cooperation of other ranchers. Uh, a lot of these people were losing cattle. There were mutilations or disappearances, and they wanted to be able to investigate. They wanted to be trusted, so they, they sort of stepped out of their, their normal low-key um, uh, path and uh, and went public and caused them nothing but trouble. Um, as for well, Bob having a lot of information, I think most of what he has is from public sources. Uh, you know, MUFA. He has an arrangement with MUFA, and I'm not sure if it's still going, but it's where not. he would cases would come in, he would pay for these guys to go out, and then um, you know, I, I I think probably there are cases that where the information came back and went nowhere, but it's not like he's got alien hardware or, um, you know, uh, the, the keys to the universe or something. It was, my understanding is the cases that were, you know, were investigated just either were unresolved or he still hoped to investigate them further before it goes public. For his scientists, for example, you know, the, as I mentioned before about what had happened to them on the ranch, they don't want to use their names on this stuff. This does them no good. And after they work for Bigelow chasing cattle mutilators and UFOs and aliens, what kind of job are they going to get? So there was some reluctance to get into that. There was also some reluctance to attach names from some of the board members because they were, many of them, in sensitive positions, you know, in government positions as consultants and things of that sort. And it um, it posed well, a, a threat to them. But I knew he had financed uh, MUFON to do investigations. Who were the other two organizations he financed? Uh, FUFOR and KUFOs. <laughs> Uh, the Fund for UFO Research, Don Berliner and uh, and those group, uh, Bruce McAbee, I think, worked with those guys. And then the CUFOs, the Center for UFO Research, that was at, uh, in Chicago. The, it was had been founded by J. Allen Hynek. Those are the three organizations they tried to get together to work with each other. And I, look, let me put it this way, is that Bob Bigelow is uh, a self-made man. He is a, uh, a, he's a, a hands-on guy. Uh, he does not delegate authority, and he drives people who work for him crazy, I think, in the sense that he, he wants things done his way. I think that that probably rubbed a lot of UFO people wrong. 
Uh, and so, you know, it's led to all kinds of stories, as I said. Well, Bob is a CIA guy. He's a mafia guy. He's a drug runner. He owns casinos, uh, none of which are true. But, um, you know, because he keeps such a low profile, it all sort of feeds on itself. I can tell you, I, I know the guy really well. I know his staff really well. They share with me a lot of information. And there is no great big secret story no revelation that's sitting there in his vaults that would explain this mystery. He is as mystified today as he was when he started, as are all of us, Angela. You know, this is a, I, I think it's a mystery that may not be solvable. It seems like whatever this is, this intelligence, that um, it shows us little glimpses here and there when it wants to. It calls the shots, it holds the cards. It's not like we're coming around a corner and discovering UFOs sitting around, it lets us see this stuff when it wants to. It does not choose to sit on the White House lawn, but it does provide displays and lets us think about it. And And maybe it's a learning curve. Maybe we're being brought along. Maybe it's just a mind game. Maybe this is the uh, cosmic uh, drive-in theater. They just like to come here and play pranks on us. We don't really know. We're no closer to solving or answering the big questions than we were 50 years ago or 60 years ago at the beginning of the modern UFO era. Who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Why are they interested in us? Anyone who says they've got the answers to that stuff is full of baloney. What do you What do you lean towards? What do you think it is personally? I really don't know. I've tried to, to keep, as a journalist, to keep from making any, any conclusions uh, any step of the way because the evidence is still coming in. I can tell you this, is that I've always been uh, sort of, as a, as a reporter, more interested in the government response to the phenomena than the phenomena itself, how the government reacts to UFO reports, the lies that are told, the subterfuge, the, the, uh, the counterintelligence, spying on UFO researchers, um, infiltrating UFO organizations, cover stories such as they put out three or four different versions for Roswell, that's the kind of thing that, as a journalist like you, you can sink your teeth into. The things that happened at Stephenville, uh, the you know the the FAA reports and the the documents, the public records, those are kinds of things we can chase. I can't begin to fathom uh, the cosmic implications of, of this stuff. I mean, I can kick it around in my head, but it's just speculation. I I mean, I, when I started out uh, twenty uh, some years ago, you know, the prevailing view was these are extraterrestrials. I I uh, that that was discarded pretty quickly. I, I think some of them could be. It, it's certainly possible. It makes sense that there's life out there. But that uh, explanation, I think, is too simplistic for the range of weird stuff that I have encountered or explored or investigated since then. It just doesn't make sense. It seems like it's something that lives here, that it's an intelligence that lives here, maybe it's always been here, coexists with us, that may be separated by some thin psychic membrane, it can see us, interact with us, we can't see it. I think a lot of people would freak out if that became a generally accepted scientific reality, that we exist in the middle of another intelligence, that they can see us and we can't see them. You, know, you talk about, people ask about reasons for cover-up, why there isn't disclosure, maybe that's it. Maybe it really, maybe it we really would freak out. You know, we, I think we, we would. We're conditioned, yeah, we're conditioned to get used to the idea of, okay, aliens, flying saucers, they land... There are space brethren. We can learn to get along. We're fine with that. But I'm not so sure that what could be disclosed, the ultimate disclosure, assuming anyone anywhere knows what the ultimate truth is, 
whether disclosure would be a good idea, you know, because the ultimate truth may not be really good news. It might be so disturbing that we would freak out that uh, that that people would see it at the end of the world, you know. But that we can get into that discussion at, later in the show if you want. I didn't mean to get all off right. The there. Let's let's move on to Bob Lazar. You broke that story uh, years ago. Are you glad you did it? Yeah, I, I am. It was sort of my entry into this whole thing. It, it actually began in 1987 when John Lear walked into our TV station and tried to interest my boss, my managing editor, Ned Day, in this whole big stack of UFO documents. John Lear of the Lear family, uh, son of the aviation pioneer, had credibility with my TV station because prior to this thing in 1987, he had uh, helped us break a really big story, and that is... Uh, Lear had been out there, A-51, which our station had covered off and on for a number of years, and he helped tell us uh, about this this really weird-looking plane that was out there, which turned out to be the stealth fighter, the F-117. Right. And because he helped us break that story, which became a national story, he had a certain amount of credibility. Well, when he came back to the station after that story had broke, and his next uh, uh, thing that he tried to get us interested in was UFOs. Here's this stack of UFO documents. MJ-12 and all this stuff, and he dropped it on my, my boss's desk, and uh, Ned Day was his name. He goes, I can't do that stuff. People think I'm crazy. Get that out of here. I'm not doing the story. Well, I had been eavesdropping about it. I said, let me take a look at that. And so I started reading through it, and I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. At the time, I produced a little half-hour uh, talk show, the kind of show that would interview the city councilman or a state legislator and airs at 6 o'clock on a Sunday morning and nobody watches it. I figured, well, this is a way to fill a show with something different. I had John Lear on that program, and the response was through the roof. Um, people calling and sending letters, and wow, can we hear more about that? I had Lear on again, and then I had him on a third time. He brought this crazy man named Bill Cooper with him uh, for Bill Cooper's first uh, TV interview, and it was at that point in that show that Lear hinted that he knew someone who might be going to work at Area 51 uh, who had some inside knowledge about the uh, flying saucers. And that was the, my first inkling about the guy who I came to know as Bob Lazar. Um, sometime later, I had a chance. We had an interview that fell through on our 5 o'clock news, and uh, I called Lear and said, hey, can your guy that uh, uh, knows about the flying saucers, can, can he come on? He said, yeah, you have to hide his face, but I think we can do that. And we had Bob Lazar on, did a five-minute interview. It went through the roof. It went national uh, really quickly. Paranet was the beginning of the internet back then, and all these UFO people went crazy. I mean, the story spread like wildfire. All of a sudden, it was on Coast to Coast with Art Bell. It was on Billy Goodman. Uh, all these uh, tabloid TV shows beat a path to our door. And I would tell them a little bit, but I didn't know that much. Uh, subsequently, my news director and I figured, well, look, this, this obviously interests the public in a way that we didn't understand. Let's take a look at it. So we met with Lazar. We figured, uh, we, we found his story to be uh, outrageous, but basically credible. He he came off as a credible kind of a guy. Uh, we started at what turned into an eight-month investigation. Uh, I had to do a crash course in ufology and learn basically who was who and about the history of the phenomena, the modern history anyway. And we ended up producing a nine-part series in November that then became a two-hour special. That's the highest-rated thing we ever produced in Las Vegas. Still ranks as the highest rated locally produced program ever in Las Vegas and uh, you know I've, I've been hooked on it ever since what is Lazar up to now 
Bob lives in Michigan. He, uh, after Las Vegas, he had moved to New Mexico, set up a lab, and uh, was running a business selling scientific equipment online. Uh, weird stuff that's hard to find anywhere else. The business did so well, uh, he ended up hiring several people. Um, and then he got married, and his wife was from Michigan. They moved to Michigan in part because one of his projects was developing a uh, hydrogen fuel system uh, for cars, for autos. And he demonstrated it for me. He had a 30-foot-long particle accelerator when I visited him in New Mexico, which is uh, uh, one way that he would create these hydrogen, this hydrogen fuel in a stable sort of form that wouldn't explode. His cars had been running on hydrogen. His vet and, a, and an SUV had been running on hydrogen for a couple of years. He wanted to develop a system where it could be mass-produced, runs in all kinds of government red tape, as you might imagine. Anyway, he moved to Michigan because he had had a promise that the state of Michigan was interested in alternative fuel systems and might help him. That turned out to be a false promise, but uh, he still operates the online um, scientific equipment business and, and does real well. What do you think of the efforts to discredit him? I have been doing a little uh, looking around at that and uh, on Facebook and things. There have been some comments. Well, yeah, it was a good story for six weeks, and then he was busted. Well, um, yes and no. I mean, you know, there are problems with the story, and people will say, well, gosh, he can't prove he went to school here, and he can't prove he worked at this place. And you know what? That was in the very first story we did. It's not like somebody... Uh, dug into Bob Lazar's story and found the deep, dark secret or something about him, we told the audience in the very first story what the problems with his background were, that he couldn't verify certain parts of it. If I didn't think that there was something to it, I wouldn't have staked my professional reputation on it. I wouldn't have spent 20 years working on it. If Bob were a con man, and I believed that were the case, then I'd get out of it, I'd say so. Uh, the problem is that there are holes in his background, that he couldn't prove that he went to these schools that he claimed. And to tell you the truth, I am i really don't think he did. I think probably he initially lied about it, like a lot of people lie about their backgrounds and, and, and do that as a way to get a good job. I mean, that happens in every job, a category you can think of, at every level of society. People exaggerate their qualifications in order to get something that they want. I think he lied about his background in order to get hired out there at S4, for me, the, the central question was, did he ever work at Los Alamos, as he claimed? Because if he worked there in, in the scientific capacity on classified projects, then it is certainly feasible he could work at, at Area 51 or S4, as the, the facility was later known. So that's where I started. And, you know, I contacted the lab. They said, no, he never worked here. Um, and then I, you know, Bob gave me a copy of the newspaper uh, that uh, had him on the front page, the Los Alamos newspaper, listed him as a physicist. He was toying with his jet car. And I went back and said, well, look, it says he's a physicist. Well, look, I'm telling you, he's not here. We don't have any record of it. So then I found the lab phone book for the time period when he was there, and, in fact, there's his name right in it. Um, they still deny that he'd ever been there. And uh, then one weekend, I went to New Mexico to Los Alamos, and Bob was there. He had a contract to produce these uh, radiation detectors for the lab, even years after he had left, he took me into the base. It was a Sunday, and he took me in. And he's in the car with us, and the guy at the front gate waves at him. We go into the, the base. He takes me into these buildings, gives us a tour. We have this on camera, by the way. It's all recorded. And it's Bob is like going through these buildings, this maze of different facilities, like a rabbit going through its own burrow. He obviously knows his way around. 
people see him, they wave at him. He took us into facilities. We went into the Mason facility, one of the world's largest particle accelerators. Nobody bothered us. Nobody hassled us. He clearly knew his way around there. I interviewed people who had worked with him, who remembered him there. Um, his former wife had, had been there. His former father-in-law had been there. They told me about the project he worked on. I, I went back to a, a headhunter company uh, called Kirkmeyer, which he said had recruited him there. I got a hold of them, and they said, yeah, he worked for us. We recruited him. We placed him there. And I said, oh, great, can we get those records? Yes, I don't see any problem with that. And then weeks go by. They didn't give me the records. I write back to them. I call them. I, I keep contacting them, and they ignore me. And finally, exasperated, well, we don't have those records. We can't find them anywhere. Uh, so something happened in between the first time I talked to him and, and the last time. Eventually, after the first four or five years of trying to get a lowdown on this, Los Alamos admitted that Bob had worked there in an unclassified capacity. This is after I produced an ID number for him, and they could no longer deny it. I filed FOIA after FOIA. I went to the schools that he claimed. I talked to former employers, people who had worked with him. I even found a couple of people who claimed they had been at Caltech when he was there. There was enough of a paper trail that convinced me that at least some of his story was true, that he had been at Los Alamos, that he'd worked in a scientific capacity on classified projects, he was there when Edward Teller was there, because the same newspaper that had him mentioned Edward Teller, and that convinced me that uh, it was at least possible he could be hired at Area 51. I never figured I would have confirmation from 51 that he worked there, but I talked to enough people who suggested they, they did believe that he'd been there. There was one guy who put Bob through his paces asking him questions about the base as sort of a test, not questions like where are the flying saucers uh, buried, but where are, for example, how, where's the cafeteria? What color's the paint inside? How do you pay for your meals? That kind of stuff. And Bob passed. We put him through a polygraph test. Um, the first test, he was so scared. Now, keep in mind, if you know the story, that he'd, his life had been threatened. And, and I'll just tell you this. I lived through some of this stuff. This is not something that Bob made up. It was a really spooky time. There was some weird stuff going on break-ins at his home and things with his car and people would uh, uh, move around things in his house, write things on his blackboard, and I was there. I was there when this stuff happened, so I know that Bob wasn't making it up. Um, we put him through a lie detector test. He was scared to death. There had been an attempt on his life. Somebody shot out a tire on his car, and he was scared. The, the polygraph guy said, I think he's, in the first test, he said, I think he's I think it, it looks like he's deceptive. The second test, he says, it's inconclusive. I'll tell you what, there's another guy who does uh, longer, more in-depth in tests. I'll send you to him if you want. The guy we went to, the second polygrapher, the first one had said, uh, it's basically, it's a wash. I can't tell you if he's telling the truth or not. The second guy is a former police officer who is still, to this day, corporate security director for a major game, gaming company. It's his job to polygraph new employees. It's his job to figure out who's lying and uh, about their backgrounds and who isn't. He, put it, he took his time with Bob, went through the central questions, identified, uh, did you work at, at S4? Did you see the flying saucers? That kind of stuff. And he said Bob passed. He did, it, did the test twice. Bob overwhelmingly passed. There was zero uh, attempts to deceive and the guy was unequivocal in his estimation that Bob was telling the truth. Now, with somebody else, that would carry some weight. With Bob Lazar, it doesn't. There's a lot of people who've come out and said the timeline doesn't make sense, and he didn't go to this school, and they figure if he didn't go to a school that he claimed, therefore everything he says about UFOs is untrue. Well, right. that's a pretty tough standard. I'll just tell you that if, have you ever told a lie in your lifetime? 
And if you tell one lie, does that mean everything in your life uh, is true, uh, is, is untrue? Not true. The thing with the, yeah, the thing with him being busted, Bob has always been a rebel. I mean, over his house, he, he races jet cars. He likes machine guns. He likes flashy women. He had, when he was in New Mexico, an interest in an illegal brothel or a, a legal brothel in Nevada, and he bragged about it. He even had it on his first resume that he sent me. I mean, he has no... He has no limited social skills in that sense, not realizing that that might not be impressive to somebody who wanted to hire him. And so uh, he comes to me one night after the first series had broken, my biggest, the biggest uh, central figure, the biggest story I ever had. And he says, by the way, I got to tell you, I'm involved with this illegal brothel. I go, what? He says, yeah, I got, I got this woman who I met uh, uh, through a classified ad. She's a hooker, and uh, we're in business together running this illegal whorehouse <laughs> operation. Oh my and by God. the way, it's right it's right down the street from where I live. It's an apartment complex. I said, you have got to be kidding me. She says, no, I'm not kidding. I'll show it to you. So he, I went. I went to go see it, and it's uh, in an apartment. Uh, uh, two, they had rented two apartments. They had ca carved out a closet, so they've got an entrance between, uh, a hidden entrance between one closet and the other. One was for business, sort of the office uh, activities, and the other was for a business of a different sort where the girls were. He and this woman who was much older than him, who'd been a, a hooker basically all her life, hit it off. Bob had called her. Uh, he had been uh, single for a long time, had a messy divorce, and was lonely and, and reached out for companionship, and they kind of hit it off, and the woman fell in love with him. Hey, let's go into business. You can help me. So he set up some security cameras for her. They went together and recruited girls from the legal ranches to come work for him on occasion, and they started running a business in these apartments. I said, Bob, you have got to stop this. You've got to quit. You've got to get out now because uh, the police are going to catch you. He says, the police already know about it. I said, what? Police, there was two vice detectives who knew this woman who had protected her her whole life. One of them sort of had a crush on her. I said, you're going to be busted, and we're all going to go down in flames. You've got to get out of this now. I called the undersheriff. I said, here's the situation. Your cops know about it. Lazar promises he's getting out of it. Let's let bygones be good bygones, and I promise it'll be closed down. The cops were freaking. They thought I was setting them up for something, so they went and busted him. And and look, we have a lot of prostitution in Las Vegas and in Nevada. Yes. Not many mm -hmm. people get prosecuted for, for being pimps. Bob was uh, facing 17 felony counts. Um, they, they didn't have him doing any drugs or anything. There was nothing else illegal going on, but they were embarrassed about it. They'd been seeing him for months on television because of my stories. There'd been all kinds of national attention, and here the guy is kind of rubbing their noses in it. So Bob is arrested, and he's facing hard time. The parole and probation department is, is required to do something, a background check on him, where they are going to recommend a sentence in case he's found guilty. And they uh, get frustrated. They go down the same path that I've been down. And they go to Los Alamos, and they, they check out his background, and they're recommending that he do hard time because he says, look, we figure he's got to be lying about this this stuff. Now, if Bob were lying, if we were making all this stuff up, that was the time to come clean because they were recommending that he do hard time in prison for being a pimp and because he was lying about his background. He could have come clean with that, got off scot-free or close to it. That was the time to come clean. But in fact, the story that he told them is the same story he told me the places where he had worked, the schools he had gone to, the jobs he had, had held, 
and the fact that he had worked on flying saucers out at Area 51. That's the story he told them. He stuck to it. And that carries a lot of weight with me, looking in retrospect. I know there are people who I respect, uh, somebody like Stan Friedman, who at least, uh, unlike a lot of the critics, at least did some of the, the legwork. He went the same place as I went. The same information that I reported in the very first story about Bob, that he could not verify parts of his background, is what Stan came up with, and he concluded Bob had to be phony. More power to him. That's He's welcome to his opinion. I'm also welcome to mine. I've worked it longer than anybody, and my opinion is that while it is not a black or white story and it is not um, clear what was going on, whether Bob was telling uh, truly a revelation or whether he was telling a story that was supposed to be told, I don't believe he was consciously cooperating in some disinformation thing. I think he, I think he was led down a path. I think they let him see glimpses of something, decided to pick somebody who could be easily discredited after the story gets out, and he was perfect for it because he had such crazy, wild interests and had, uh, you know, credentials that were not uh, easily provable. I figured, let's see what happens when we tell this story about Area 51. We did. It went crazy. It went international. And then they came down on him and basically helped to discredit him. And I think this hooker bust was part of that. And now, then the fact is... When, when you say they, you're talking about government officials let him yeah. see glimpses of things and set him up yeah. to disclose this. Yeah, right? I believe that Bob really was out there. Yeah, I believe that he really was out there and really did see some of this stuff. He saw something that looked very much like flying saucers. Now, the fact is, since his story came out, I've got more than two dozen other people who have worked at Area 51 over the years, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, who have seen the same thing, bits and pieces of the same thing. Uh, had experiences out at that base or on the exterior of the base. People who were scientists, people who were engineers, people who just sort of knew other people at the base. The the golf pro for Nellis Air Force Base, for example. A guy who did taxes for a lot of the officers that, that ended up working at Area 51 would tell me things that they were told by others. A U.S. senator who was very familiar with the base who told me about the stuff that was out there. And basically, these other people who don't know each other gave me bits and pieces of the same story that Bob had. And if, if it hadn't been for all those other people, I might have bailed on the story a long time ago. The fact is, it is not easy to understand. But those who say that this is some disinformation campaign, that it is created to distract attention from something else that was going on at Area 51, I think uh, if that was, in fact, the strategy, it failed miserably. Because as a result of Bob's story going national and international, thousands and thousands of people have beaten a path to Area 51's door. Every major news organization in the world has been there. Congressional investigators, I mean, so much intense scrutiny has been put on that facility. Uh, the base that didn't exist, the base that the Air Force would not even acknowledge as being real, uh, suddenly is on the map. There are video games and songs and music videos and bars named for it. There are, you know, it's, well, so George, what the was world. their purpose then? What what was their purpose in setting him up? Because um, it it didn't uh, benefit them. Why would I think they, it was? Yeah. Why would they? I can do only that? speculate. I, I can only speculate. I want. I think maybe there are factions that wanted to see. Well, look, if we let this story out, do people really freak out? How would they react? Uh, it could very well be that they did have the intention of. Let's tell this story about UFOs 
Bob gets discredited, and then everybody will leave us alone because we have really, truly exotic things flying around out here. No one will ever believe a story about what's flying around out here again. The fact is, it failed miserably. It boomeranged on them because so, so much intense interest uh, resulted from Bob's story that everyone came to Area 51 looking for whatever it was that was flying around in the sky out there. And that continues to this day. Every single day, there's someone with binoculars or a telescope uh, or just their own eyeballs out there looking around for whatever is flying. So if they wanted to distract attention away from the base, away from something else that was going on, it failed miserably. Well, an interesting part of that story to me was the element 15 that when it was heated up or whatever you want to call it, it, it changed into element 116. Did Bob have that? Did he have the container? Did you see it? The I saw a demonstration that John Lear did on some program of how it worked, this little triangle piece of... Uh, uh, I don't know what you call it in there, the Element 115. Right. Well, um, let me put it this way. Um, Bob had said that this Element 115 was a super heavy element that had to be created naturally. We couldn't create it here no matter how much energy we, we used. We couldn't create a stable form of it, and he said they had 500 pounds out of there. The only thing he figured is it had to come from a, a star system, a binary star system, where it would have been natural, where super heavy elements were natural. And he said by bombarding this with, I think, protons, neutrons, I'm not a, a physicist, so I'm not quite sure I'm remembering this correctly, it would basically be a 100% um, a reaction uh, turning all of the uh, all of the material into pure energy, that a little bit of this stuff could power not only these flying saucers, but could power almost anything and could take us to the stars. It could power a city. It was an amazing uh, stuff. Yeah, it became 116. Bob had a piece of it, and everybody uh, has long assumed that it was stolen from Area 51, and that is not the case. That's not where he got it. He got it from somewhere else, another facility. Uh, someone else grabbed it from a facility that works uh, closely with Area 51, uh, where they were machining it, were honing it into these little cone-shaped things, and uh, he had it. And you know, you can. I, I saw what an experiment with him. What facility did it come through, George? Los Alamos. Okay. Los and, Alamos and, National Lab. And it was yeah. handed off to Lazar. Handed off to Bob. Yeah, and he had it for a time. And um, I was at his house one time when he did what's called a cloud chamber experiment with it, where he uh, has this little glass enclosure and has a little tiny piece of this stuff on the top of a head of a pin, and it, it, the glass enclosure is filled with smoke. And really, it looks like, and he puts light through it, it looked like the light bent. It looked like as it goes around, it bent as it went around this thing. And that was recorded, and I'll be darned if I can find the recording, but I got the original tape, and where it is, I don't know. But it was a demonstration that I found to be pretty impressive, even for a knucklehead when it comes to science like me. At the period when Bob thought he was going to be killed, and this is sort of what convinced me that he thought it was the real stuff, he had a uh, particle accelerator that he built. It's in his house. And one of the things you can do is it, it becomes a total annihilation if you um, bombard this stuff with, again, protons, neutrons, I'm not quite sure, but bombard it with enough stuff, and it will become the most powerful bomb you can imagine. When Bob thought he was going to be killed, he had this stuff, and it was encased in a lead disc. He had it right in front of his, his particle accelerator, 
and he figured that if they come to get him, he was going to flip a switch and everybody was going to go by. And, um, you know, that was not a, a game because I, I, you know, I would come to his house at times and he was really shaken up after there'd been a break in. Uh, he had one ex- experience where he had a, he was car- started carrying a handgun in his car and he and a friend had gone to a gym and they, um, they lock the car, go into the gym, come out an hour later. The car doors are open, the windows are rolled down, the glove box is open, and the gun is still sitting there. It was like somebody just saying, yeah, we see you have a gun, big deal. So he was really scared, and, when, and the reaction was, when he thought he was going to be killed, he was ready to take a whole bunch of people with him by blowing this stuff up because he believed it to be real. And that's, that's the best I can do in explaining the 115. Well, that's pretty good. Um. A while a while ago, you mentioned uh, Doctor Teller, Edward Teller, and right. uh, that he worked with Bob. What did your investigation of him show? Well, not really worked with Bob. Is that on the day that the Los Alamos Monitor newspaper did this story on Bob and had it on the front page about his jet car? He'd had a he'd he'd built a jet engine into a Honda, a little Honda Civic, which they found odd enough that it was a cool little feature story. And and in, again, in the story, they cited Bob as being a physicist working at Los Alamos National Lab. In the same issue of the paper, there's a little notice that said, Dr. Edward Teller will be at the lab today to speak to blah, blah, blah. Bob, the story that Bob had told was he was uh, on the campus. He wanted to go see Teller and happened to walk up to the facility where Teller was going to be speaking, and Teller was sitting outside, like reading a newspaper, reading the article about Bob. And Bob struck up a conversation saying, hey, that's me. Dr. Teller introduced himself. And it, it struck up a conversation, and uh, Bob mentioned something about maybe wanting to work somewhere else or whether Keller would keep him in mind or ever recommend him for a job, something along those lines, and Teller agreed. Well, it was later when Bob is in, had moved to Las Vegas that uh, he caught wind of uh, through a company called EG&G that there was an opening for something really exotic, that they were looking for a physicist. Um, and he wrote to Teller and had asked for a recommendation, and Teller did recommend him, and apparently that got his foot in the door and and allowed him to get the job. But Bob never worked with Teller. It was just that sort of a passing acquaintance. Later, I wrote to Teller a bunch of times, called him, and would never get a response. But another company, uh, a media company, I think it was Inside Edition or or, uh, what was Maury Povich's show uh, that Bill O'Reilly also hosted, uh, kind of a tabloidy kind of a show, yeah. They caught up to Teller. Yeah, they caught up to Teller, interviewed him about something else, and at the end, they sprung this question about Lazar on him. Do you recognize that name? No, nah, I don't recognize that name. You're sure you don't recognize Bob Lazar, Los Alamos, Area 51? And then Teller gives a real cryptic sort of answer. Well, maybe I did. Maybe I recommended him for a job, you know, but I can't be expected to remember all these names. And and um, sure seemed to be a glimmer of recognition that he really did remember, but it was we were never able to pin him down. The closest we can get is the fact that Teller was at Los Alamos at the lab at the same time that Bob was there, that there are both articles about both of them in the same newspaper, and that it is perfectly reasonable to say that Teller could have been reading the newspaper uh, on the day when he was visiting uh, the lab. Have you uh, run on to any new information on the Lazar story that, that you think bears on the original story, something that you haven't put out there yet? Yeah, but I, I'm not, let me think. Little tidbits come my way all the time. Uh, you know, as a result of doing those stories, I've got to know a whole lot of people at Area 51. 
including people who were worked out there who don't believe the flying saucer stories at all. These guys are guys uh, in an organization known as the Roadrunners. And it, for years, you know, the government wouldn't acknowledge there was a base out there. And then they denied that they ever had used the name Area 51. Uh, they wouldn't allow anybody else to use it either. Uh, these guys all had worked for the CIA on the SR-71 and the U-2 spy planes and the A-12. All very cool guys, interesting guys who kept their mouths shut, loyal Americans. I got to know them as a result of a lawsuit that had been filed um, during the years when the stealth program was uh, underway out there. Uh, Area 51 was so paranoid about security that they would not allow anything to leave the base. There is no such thing as garbage. So all these weird composite materials that went into building the stealth fighter and stealth bomber, they'd throw them into open pits, set them, douse them with jet fuel, and set them on fire. And these huge billowy clouds of black smoke would cover the entire base. These guys would breathe this stuff in all the time, and pretty soon a lot of them started getting sick, and a couple yeah. of them died. Well, a lawsuit was filed. Jonathan Turley, who's a professor at George Washington University Law School, uh, who is now a staple on, on cable television, uh, was a young lawyer at the time. He filed a lawsuit on behalf of Area 51 workers. And, you know, just wanting basic justice, just tell us what we're exposed to so we can get medical care instead of abandoning us. And, and I did a lot of stories on that. We followed it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, the TV station that I worked for filed a brief and was an amicus to the, this case, our part of the case won. We got a lot of information about Area 51 that we forced out of the government, but the, the employees lost. However, because we were part of it, I got to know a lot of them, and they came to trust us. And over the years, I've sort of developed some relationships there. I got to know the Roadrunners. I became, started attending their gatherings. And uh, lo and behold, about six or seven years ago, the CIA decided it was going to ease up on Area 51 and allow these guys to start talking about some of the projects that were now 40 years old. And so they did their first interviews with me, uh, T.D. Barnes and some of those guys. I became an uh, associate member of the Roadrunners. Uh, they even had me sitting at the head table during their, their last two reunions, uh, which, you know, the guys who are there, ex-CIA guys, get a big kick out of there's the flying saucer guy who spilled all the beans on Area 51 who's uh, joining us and telling jokes at their at their gathering. So uh, as a result, I got to, to meet a lot of them, got a lot of stories, and I still get stories. Uh, the one that I would say that I find most interesting that I have not reported before is a technician, a scientist who had worked at Area 51, who tells me that his job was to do gravity mapping of the area, that they did a whole magnetic survey of the base and all the land around it measuring highs and lows in gravity waves, and I'm, I don't know how that works, but his his premise was they were looking for determining the strength of gravity because they had an anti-gravity machine out there, something that uh, relied on or reacted to gravitational waves uh, as a mode of transportation. So that, that was kind of an interesting little slice. Uh, I haven't really done much with it, but uh, I do intend to pursue that further. Well, thank you for that, George. Um one more question. As you know, I've kept you overtime. I hope that's not a problem. Okay. Uh, what would you happen to be uh, working with National Geographic on this uh, new uh, documentary or show that they have coming out in the spring about Area 51? No, I'm not. And I, I, I just got some notices about that today, and my reaction is, uh, you know, that 
so many shows have been done about Area 51. I, about 10 years ago, I stopped doing them. I just stopped doing interviews because I told the same story over and over. And and all these uh, network guys and, and uh, shows will make the same promises, oh, we're going to blow the lid off of it. And all they do is come into town, tell the story again, steal your material, and take credit for it. And I think that's what National Geographic, as fine an organization as that is, is going to do. Now, the, the promo for this show, and I don't want to tell people not to watch it. They can go ahead and watch it. We're going to talk to Area 51 employees for the first time ever on camera. Well, that's just that's just a lie, you know. These guys have been talking on camera with me for five years. We're going to reveal documents and photos that have never been released. Those documents and photos were released to the Roadrunners. The Roadrunners posted them on their website People can see that stuff right now. So unless uh, National Geo has some stuff that the former employees of Area 51 don't know about, I suspect that this is a lot of hype, that they're, they're promoting this thing as like they have discovered this base that the world doesn't know about, and it's a big scoop, and it's a bunch of crap. All right. I uh, kind of wonder about National Geographic. Sometimes they do some pretty good stuff, and then sometimes, like you say, it's a bunch of crap. Well, like uh, programs like Nova. I've always loved Nova. But, you know, you look into the background of Nova, and, and so many times over the years when it comes to exotic topics like this, UFOs, aliens, they debunk it. They're flat-out debunkers. They don't take, a, take the time to get all sides. They don't really look at it credibly. You look at that Peter Jennings show, Angela, and, you know, you know it got so much attention, it's going to blow the lid off of, uh, of UFOs. And, you know, they start out, by examining the cases, talking to some really interesting and, and well-educated people on the topic, and they end up debunking it. They all do the same thing. In the end, they weasel out. The debunkers get the last word. They'll explain away these cases in some easily refutable way, but they're the ones that get the last word because no matter how much these networks love the rating spike, uh, they don't want to commit to it. They, they want to maintain what they consider to be journalism uh, standards of journalism and anything as crazy as UFOs in their hearts they believe can't be true. Well, they're wrong. It is true. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the ultimate the solution to the mystery is, but there's something real going on and it deserves fair scrutiny by science and journalism. I, I happen to believe that the, the, at current, uh, the current standing that the government doesn't have an active cover-up that people inside our military probably don't know much more than you and I do because whatever information they had was taken out of their hands, sent privatized uh, a long time ago. That, uh, that maybe these gigantic uh, aviation companies or private contractors, spooky private companies that do the, the bidding of the uh, Pentagon are the ones that, that are the real holders of the secret secrets. I suspect that the ultimate truth is something that they don't know yet. They might have some technology. They may have some toys that have led to other kinds of breakthroughs that have helped them make a lot of money. But I don't think they put a whole lot of time into figuring out the true meaning of the cosmic mystery, uh, what this other intelligence, uh, whatever it is, wherever it's from, has in store for us. I don't think they're that deep of a thinkers. You know, it's too bad. I, I wish there were more people like yourself involved in this. I wish there were network people with network resources who would go after it. Uh, but the fact is, it's been so tainted that I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, nor do I think there's going to be anything like disclosure, because I don't think our government knows what to disclose. I, don't, I really don't. 
I wish I had the resources to go after it because I I am hook, line, and sinker now. Uh, <laughs> I, I always say, it's fun, isn't you know, it? yeah. Well, I, it's fun. I said at at one point about a year ago, I kind of got disgusted because there was just so much crap to wade through. I, I just don't think I'm going to do this anymore. There's no way to figure this out. And then I thought, well, at this point, I would be like a bear caught in a trap. I would have to chew my own foot off to get out. You know? It's too much fun. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's too much fun to walk away from, and the stakes are too high. These are important questions. Our place in the cosmos, our true uh, reason for existing, where we fit in the big scheme, these are big questions. Uh, too big for somebody as lunk-headed as me, but it's fun to pursue it, and I'll never stop. Never. George, with that, I want to thank you so much for being on with me, and I hope that I can count on you to come back again sometime. Absolutely, and you're going to have to join me on Coast to Coast here one of these days soon. Anytime. All right. And okay. I appreciate you and all the work you've done. I think it's phenomenal. I want to say good night to the listeners. I appreciate you listening. We'll see you next Thursday night, and my guest will be Jim Penniston, and we're going to talk about Rendlesham. Good night. this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future please let us know until next time watch this space and thank you so much for listening